Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Almost here, round the corner technology. And today I have Trent McConaughey from BigChainDB.com. He's the CTO and co-founder. Trent, how you doing? Uh, very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right, can you tell listeners um, what does BigChainDB do in the, uh, in the blockchain world? What are you guys about? Sure. So overall, we see that um, in the blockchain world, there has been challenges with scale and also with, you know, are blockchains a database, yes or no, et cetera. And given this long history of databases going back decades and decades uh, where they have really great performance and scalability, creatability, all this sort of thing, we said, um, why not merge the best of both worlds? So overall, BigchainDB is a blockchain database. It's got you know these nice characteristics of databases, but then it also ha- brings in these nice characteristics that blockchains have, like decentralization, immutability, and assets. So um, BigchainDB is, yeah, a database that has blockchain characteristics. Yeah, what's, say more about that. What's, what are more of the differences between a database and a blockchain? Yeah, so uh, traditional databases, uh, you know, traditional, traditional ones are things like Oracle going back decades and decades where there were these, you know, tables. Think of it like a, an Excel spreadsheet. But then um, they had querying on top so that you could make this special call using a special query language like SQL. And with that, you could get um, from, say, a million or tens of millions of records, you could come back with three records or 20 records according to query. You know, this person is over the age of 40, um, this person lives in Berlin, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that was really nice because in one line, you could specify, you know, this detailed information, um, get back these records. And that's, you know, sort of at a level for software developers and whatnot, but then that translates to immediate user benefits too at the higher level with the applications. And databases are um, really, you know, what is storing all of our data out there. When you're using Gmail, when you're using Facebook, all of these things, at the core of what's storing your data is these databases. So they have a long, long history. And, um, you know, they've continued to evolve over the years. And um, from the late 90s and throughout the 2000s, where they evolved was towards scalability. Uh, you know, when you got to these applications um, as the web grew, uh, these applications getting to 100 million and even a billion users, um, the databases, um, their ability to scale grew accordingly. And so to this day, you know, they're out there, they're, they're powering the internet, they're powering the web for all the data that is being stored. But one challenge that we've had is that um, it's typically one big organization, or you might have grown big, that can ca- kind of controls all that data. So you know, you've got a bunch of your personal data on Facebook, you've got a bunch of um, data with Gmail, all of this thing, right? And um, then along came Bitcoin, and it was really this sort of e-cash, right? The very first time that we could have this e-cash or e-gold that's out there where the ledger of who owns what, remembering who owns what, was just kind of no one owned or controlled that. It was just kind of out there because there was you know thousands of nodes that were collectively storing that. And um, you can think of that as like a database, but it, it had spe- this special characteristic that no one owned or controlled it, right? And that's really the very essence of, you know, the, the idea of a blockchain. So under the hood, what, what Bitcoin had was this, you know, thing that's called a blockchain technology. And at the core of that was this idea that no one owned or controlled it. 
Um, the other couple interesting okay. characteristics was um, uh, it, it was immutable, is immutable. So once you write to it, it's like it's there for good, right? So um, right. it's like etching into stone. And um, traditional databases, you know, and in, well, I'll just go to the third characteristic. So the third one is, is once you have decentralized control, no single entity owns the controls, and once you have this idea of immutability etching into stone, then you can start to issue, have assets living on this thing. So with the case of Bitcoin, the asset is literally Bitcoins. And, you know, these mm. days there's, uh, I think, 12 or $15 billion worth of, worth of Bitcoins out there. And, you know, these started getting issued in the early days of Bitcoin, bit by bit, through this process called mining. Um, and that just hap- happens to be how Bitcoin does it. But you don't have to stop at just, you know, Bitcoins on the Bitcoin network. Um, you can actually, you know, if I want, I can... Um, declare that I'm issuing a set of assets onto some blockchain technology, mm-hmm. and um, and then I can transfer those assets to others and to others and others. So you can have basically this idea of you know digital ownership. You own it if you have the private key, which is roughly like a password. So um, right. I can own a piece of digital art if I have the password. So these three characteristics taken together, um, decentralized, immutable, and assets, these are really the new things compared to the traditional databases that you see with, say, Oracle, or Microsoft SQL Server, which is kind of the older school, and then these new scalable ones, such as MongoDB, um, you know, which scale really, really well. Um, you know, so blockchains are databases with these sort of new characteristics. And what they compromised, though, in getting these new characteristics was the, the queryability and the scaling, right? Um, so well, let's while talk about that now. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was just about to ask you that. So mm-hmm. what do blockchains lack that traditional databases have? It sounds like they're great. You know, what, what's the downside? Yeah, so the downside um, can be summarized as scalability and queryability, right? So, um, and, and part of the reason why was in, um, it, it's hard to get all, all things at once, right? And, um, you know, so when Bitcoin came out, it was, you know, it had enough new characteristics that made it interesting, right? Um, but to yeah. achieve some of those characteristics, um, the way that, you know, its engineering solution to achieve those characteristics was saying every single node needs to store all the data, right? And um, this is the, in database land, you call it, this is called fully replicated. But um, if, if every single node has to store all the data, then, um, you know, how can you have storage of, say, you know, 10 terabytes, right? Um, you know, if I want to have a node, do I want to download 10 terabytes? That's, that's going to, you know, take a long time and cost a lot of money, right? Um, so that was, whereas with traditional databases like MongoDB and stuff, you know, the big data databases of the 2000s, um, their idea is that each node, each sort of physical machine, only stores a fraction of the data, right? And you have backups and backups of backups, et cetera. Um, but overall, uh, you know, no single node has to store all the data. So that was the one big challenge. Um, and that sort of, you know, affected capacity as well as, um, you know, had side effects related to, to throughput um, and so on. The other aspect was this idea of queryability, right? So um, if you want to look at um, a set of uh, all the transactions that I have recorded on, on Bitcoin, right? For myself to do that, I'm going to have to basically look at all the past transactions ever, 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 and then see which lines up with um, um, certain public keys and so on, right? And addresses in general, Bitcoin addresses. So uh, in order to do a query, I have to, have to kind of look at all the previous items. Whereas um, with, with databases, they have, um, for a long time, the, you know, part of the, they have querying sort of built in. And under the hood, it's been optimized for speed, where you can do lookups. 
um, where you get uh, login, failing, and so on. You don't have to look at everything all the time because you've pre-built these indices for looking certain things up. And so you can get, you know, massive speed improvements. And that's why, you know, like, you know, let's say you're using Facebook and you type into the search at the top there um, and it comes back with a result very quickly. Or Google, when you do a Google search, right, how is it possible where it gets its results back even though there's potentially billions of records being looked at? Well, the answer right. is it's built these indices, right, that allow um, such that uh, these queries can come back and return results very quickly. So that was the core thing, basically, was, um, you know, the blockchains didn't have the, uh, the scalability in terms of capacity and otherwise. And um, the other thing, actually, on scalability was throughput. It just basically there aren't that many transactions per second going through Bitcoin. Um, so overall scalability. And then the second thing was the, the queryability. There really wasn't sort of queryability out of the box. Um, and it's sort of a sign of that. Um, there's this, I, these things called blockchain explorers where uh, it's sort of a web page where you can go in and scroll across different transactions just to see what it is. Um, and then if you want, there's typically a little search button in the top right that um, not a button, sorry, a, a search box, you type something in and then it has to look at all the past transactions, right? But that's exactly what databases do is, you know, have this built-in querying, so. All right, so what, what is, um, all right, so you really described well the difference between databases and blockchains and the advantages, disadvantages. So what's the goal of your company? How, how are you integrating the best of both to, uh, to make something scalable and faster? Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's clearly differences between traditional databases and traditional blockchains, but our view is that, you know, fundamentally, uh, blockchains, at least for most applications, are really databases, and that's been our philosophy, you know, that's why we're called Big Chain DB and not just Big Chain. Um, and so the approach has been, okay, uh, there has been a lot of efforts out there to try to scale up um, blockchains, and um, it reminded me of work that I did in the late 90s and throughout the 2000s where I was working on um, AI systems, including distributed AI systems, where people, you know, connected the dots, they figured out how to solve problem X or Y um, in terms of, you know, just evolving something or, or doing AI of some form. And then they said, all we would need to do now is scale up. And it turns out that, you know, when you scale up, you have to completely throw out all your previous algorithms and developments. And the only thing you really have to remember is the inputs and outputs. You kind of have to abandon your pet code and this is kind of, when I saw all the efforts to sort of scale up blockchain, it reminded me of this. It's like, all we need to do now is scale up. And I, I was thinking to myself, mm. well, you know, um, that didn't work with AI, actually. Um, it was actually a very different thing where typically you have to rethink the algorithms completely. And the algorithms you end up with tend to be much simpler. Um, and, and there's been a lot of research showing this too, right, with every sort of 10x increase in data or other performance measures, you have a, a different algorithm that's, that's better. So... Um, uh. We, 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 you know, uh, we have many friends in the, that were building infrastructure in the blockchain space, and we saw these efforts, and we thought that was really interesting and cool. But um, we had great needs. We had started off actually um, in mid 2013 doing a project called Ascribe. Um, it's still online, Ascribe.io for IP on the blockchain and um, intellectual property on the blockchain, things like right. digital art, um, music, movies, all this sort of thing. And uh, we were running into problems of scale there, right? And um, we were finding that we weren't able to serve our customers, people who were going through, say, 100,000 uh, images a day. We simply couldn't put that onto the blockchain we had initially built on, the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, at the time, it was going through 100,000 transactions a day itself. So if we actually turned on one customer, we would have doubled the number of transactions. And each transaction right. back then was costing 10 cents. 
So overall, we had this burning need, right? We weren't able to actually scale even ourselves um, to serve even one, you know, larger customer. Um, and so we were talking to, you know, friends in the space, and none of them were actually building the solutions that were really in the near term. And we thought, okay, also what's out there, you, you know, um, there clearly are things that scale out there, you know, Facebook serving a billion users, um, many others doing 100 million plus users. You know, Netflix um, was uh, powering 37% of the bandwidth um, of the Internet in the USA, um, running off of Cassandra instances, which is one of the big data databases. So there's clearly stuff that scales out there, right? And it's including databases. So we said, well, let's take one of these databases that's out there that clearly scales extremely well, one of these big data databases. Um, And there's a lot, you know, MongoDB, Cassandra are two great examples. And use that as a starting point and then engineer in these deltas, you know, the things that make blockchains interesting above and beyond traditional databases. And like I mentioned, those are three things. Decentralized, as in no single entity owns the controls. Immutable, like etching into stone. And assets, the the idea that you can issue and transfer assets and you own that asset um, the way that um, if you have the private key, basically. So we, we said, let's try this out. And um, within, uh, we initially did a, a couple of months worth of prototyping. This was in um, late summer of 2015, and it worked out remarkably well. We were kind of shocked how well it worked, actually. So we said, okay, let's let's put some more resources into this because this could be a great solution to us, um, to even just for ourselves. And um, and we thought also that others were having issues with scale too. So so we started building that more and more and more. And um, you know, in February uh, of 2016, uh, we got to the point where we could announce publicly what we were up to. And that's when we released uh, version 0.1. And um, ever since then, we continue to iterate and refine. And so, and what it was, you know, version 0.1, um, it was open source software remains like that. It's, uh, of course, uh, we, ha- we released the white paper, uh, the code, all of that. And um, ever since, you know, we've, we've released um, several versions. Now we're up to, uh, we just released 0.8. We're going to be doing point nine within the next few weeks here, um, and keep going. So, so what, yeah, I guess. Go ahead. So, what does your solution do? I mean, first of all, which blockchain does it work with, or does it work with any blockchain, and what does it do? Yeah, so um, it doesn't work with any blockchain because it incorporates the characteristics of blockchains um, itself into its structure. How we engineered it was we built on top of one of the. Um, you know, one of the great databases out there that works. In our case, it was RethinkDB initially, um, which, you know, has really great scalability, really great querying, all of this. And more recently, we've been integrating into MongoDB as well. And that will be coming to um, a a really full release very soon here, actually, which we're quite excited. So what does it do? Um, In a sense, the interface is a mix of what you would expect from a traditional database where you can um, create records and read them of course, you can't update them or delete them because that is not um, part of what blockchains do, right? It's really about creating records and update and reading them. Uh, this is sort right. of the CRUD thing, just to be precise. And then, um, so it has an interface around that, which includes the querying and all that. And then there's an interface that is a bit more like you would expect um, from blockchain technologies, where it's issuing assets and transferring them. So basically, um, issuing an asset and transfer is really um, a create operation in database land. So I guess overall, um, from the perspective of if you're a software developer making, you know, your next great blockchain application, then you're going to be um, doing a transaction, writing a transaction, which basically looks like some JSON code um, um, that is either a, a create an asset or a transfer an asset. 
and you can get fancier too with fancier logic and stuff, but that's really the core. And then after that, the other thing is just simply querying to see, okay, um, you know, I want to learn more about this asset here, or give me all the assets that meet this criteria, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of the day, what does it do? Well, it acts like a database uh, because it is a database okay. um, that happens to have these blockchain characteristics, right? You know, once you've written, things are there for good, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. What do you think is going to happen to existing blockchains out there, especially Bitcoin or Ethereum, or is, are they doomed to be unable to scale, or what's going to happen? So I'm pretty excited about a lot of the technologies that are out there. And my view overall is that there's really a stack. So um, I think, you know, blockchain as a noun isn't really an apt description of what's going on. It's sort of like imagine we had uh, vehicles and everyone talks about, oh, is this vehicle doomed versus this one? Is this one going to take over? But once we ended up having cars and trucks and semis and motorcycles, then each one was, you know, uh, had its own pros and cons, you know. So um, collectively they form all vehicles, but each one has its own benefits. Um, so that's one example. Um, but what's cool, they can also be used um, complementary to each other, right? So um, if you think about um, overall, you know, the elements of computing, there's, there's really three core elements, right? There are, is processing, there's storage, and there's communications. And um, this manifests in a sort of software stack that a, an application developer is building. They're going to want something that does processing. Um, in a traditional system, um, that's, say, Amazon EC2. They're going to want storage. And in a traditional system, that comes down to two separate um, types of technologies. You've got file systems, whether it's, you know, traditional Windows file system um, or whether it's storing, you know, blobs of data on Amazon S3 or something. And then you've got databases, right? So for storage, you've got file systems and databases. And databases are, you know, these things where they have more structured data that you want to query to get, you know, from a million possible results, you get two or five or one result, right? And that's like MongoDB right. or something. And then the third element, so we've got processing, we've got storage. The third element of computing is simply communication. And that's really just how the communication protocols uh, interoperate with each other. So how does this map to the world of decentralization and blockchains? Well, there's actually some technologies out there that are really best suited to processing, decentralized processing. And these are things that are called smart contracts. And, you know, smart contracts, everyone agrees, is not a great name because they're not terribly smart and they're not really contracts in a business sense. Decentralized processing is actually a much better fit because you basically got processing happening, um, like Amazon EC2 style or whatever, but it's actually happening in a decentralized fashion, you know, where it's many, many servers at once, no single entity owns or controls, et cetera. Then besides that, you've got a decentralized file systems happening, right? So instead of your Windows file system or Amazon S3 or something, you've got something decentralized, and that's something like IPFS, Interplanetary File System. That's just out there, right? And there's other ones too, lots of other really good projects out there um, for, for processing and for file systems. And then for us, um, it's really about a decentralized database, right? So um, processing file system database overall. Um, and most of the people doing blockchain technologies are trying to do the, the smart contract stuff. So that's why um, we actually don't see that we have direct competition for people trying to do straight up just a database, right? Um, so we're, we're working on that. We're making it look, act, feel, right? Like a traditional database, not trying to get fancy, just happening to have really great scalability in addition to these blockchain characteristics, scalability and queryability. Um, so, you know, and then to, to the question of Bitcoin, actually, um, it's really this sort of other category that's sort of an application level almost, uh, that, uh, and that's really Bitcoin is best thought of as an, an e-gold, you know, electronic gold, uh, you know, a long-term store of value that, you know, um, is independent of nations and so on, right? 
Um, it mm-hmm. also, um, you know, depending who you ask, it's also it can be viewed as an e-cash, electronic cash, um, for more day-to-day sort of fast money type things. Um, and so overall, you know, as the value transfer mechanism, um, you know, that's where, um, or a store of value, that's where really Bitcoin is, is best suited. Whereas in something like Ethereum and many of the other sort of public blockchains, yes, they have a store of value, but that is simply a means to an end. Um, in the case of Ethereum, it's really about decentralized processing. So we actually like to so, work very closely with, you know, people in the space. The IPFS folks we work with closely. We work with many Ethereum folks closely. And, you know, overall, it's about, you know, collectively building this whole decentralized act together. So how do you feel that um, you're going to play a role? Are you going to become the backbone or the blockchain or the database for, you know, some new initiatives, new cryptocurrencies or other blockchains, or do you, are you, are you going to be in an advisory capacity? Hey, we can help you scale blockchain or Ethereum or, you know, where do you see yourself fitting into the ecosystem? Yeah. So overall, you know, out there, there's a, a lot of people that are building applications um, that are only able, enabled now based on this new technology, right? Um, applications related to, um, for example, sovereign personal data, where you are owning and controlling your personal data rather than it being on these centralized servers. Or um, things like uh, intellectual property, you know, distribution of music and so on, right? Um, there's a, uh, this offers much better ways to connect the, the creator directly with the, um, the, the, the audiences where the middleman has less of a role and in some cases no role at all, right? And so there's people building these wonderful new applications in all these different verticals and they're looking for um, decentralization technology to help them, right? In some cases, yep. they're going to want pro- decentralized processing. In other cases, file systems. In other cases, databases, right? Just like if you're an application developer building, you know, the next Facebook or the next Netflix or whatever, you're going to use different technology pieces under the hood. So whenever they are sitting down and saying, hey, I need a database that stores this data, um, you know, of who owns what, of, of different sorts of things, then, um, then that's where they would use us. So they would plug us in. Just like if you're, you know, a traditional, you know, web app developer or something, you might plug in MongoDB. Now, um, you know, the decentralized is BigchainDB, right? So it's not about directly, you know, helping people build better blockchains because, you know, it's, that's not the point. It's, it's this piece. Um, it's a, a building block for the application developers, right? Um, so they can yeah. plug in our database, right? And I guess related to this, though, is um, one funny thing about decentralization technology is, it's, you can view it as a, a sort of a, a single system, you know, a distributed system that has one administrator, and that's what distributed systems are. But in the case of decentralized, it means, you know, no single entity owns the controls. So there could be five entities controlling it, or 50, or 500, or whatever. And, uh, you know, BigGNDB is no different that way. Um, so that means, though, there's the software, but you also need sort of a network on top, right, that, is, um, that basically manifests um, the control by these 50 or 5,000 folks, right, or organizations. So we've been rolling out um, something complementary. So BigchainDB is the software, and ICDB is the network. And so people who are building applications on top, they can either have their own sort of um, private um, network, if you will, of five or 20 organizations, but they can also use the one, this public network that we're rolling out called IPDB, and then they, they don't need to think about that. They can just plug into that. And we are very excited about that because we see that um, it, along with some of these other emerging technologies, are new pieces of Internet infrastructure. You know, if everything goes according to sort of our visions and hopes, right, 
just like sort of right now, you know, D the DNS is something that's out there. When you type in, say, Amazon.com, it goes to a particular IP address, you know, say 123.456.789. And that's sort of this database that helps to power the Internet for this one very specific thing, right? But what about, you know, a database of um, who has created what song or who has created what image, right? Or um, a whole bunch of other things, right? There is no sort of piece of um, Internet infrastructure that's out there for the sort of public commons, if you will, um, this commons database of, of, of who owns what for these various verticals, whether it's intellectual property or otherwise. And this is kind of what we see um, that we're helping to roll out. So um, this is what IPDB is. It's this public network powered by BigGDB software for now. And uh, we're, it really is exciting to us. So that's how people would use us. If you're a developer, it feels like you're using a hosted solution, just like hosted MongoDB or uh, which is called Atlas or some other hosted solution. But in this case, it's not hosted by just one party, but a whole bunch of parties that are collectively running it together, right? So what are um, some simple use cases of, of your software, of your database, and how would they look differently from how they look now? Let's take um, music. Yeah, so uh, for sure, that's a great start. And um, that's an exciting one. So uh, I'll give an example with one of the organizations that we were working with called Resonate Co-op. They're based in Berlin. And they are they have the vision of a decentralized streaming service. So they are a co-op, so it's not, it's a, not a company, but a co-op where you can spend $5 or more and get one share in the co-op. And then you can have hundreds or thousands of owners overall in this co-op. And uh, so that's sort of the ownership. But then in terms of the user experience, um, as an artist, uh, I, if I was a musician, I'm not, I'm not a musician, I'd be a terrible musician. But if I was, I could uh, register my work on, on Resonate, um, claim copyright, um, very likely uh, claim it with others. You know, maybe there's a different songwriter versus the performer and maybe um, multiple performers, et cetera. And um, that's all written down um, onto this uh, planetary database, IPDB. That's powered by BigChainDB. And then okay. um, it's just that kind of out there, right, um, being stored. And I've made that claim of that song, and I've registered the song. It's, it's all there. And then um, someone else comes along, say you, and you want to actually listen to this, right? So you um, basically can browse and discover the song, and then you can start listening. And you paid a fee uh, of, say, I don't know what the pricing will be, but you know the other streaming services are on the order of $8 a month. So you pay a fee and then you listen, and then basically it gets calculated how much goes back uh, to that initial um, artist, that initial musician, say myself, right? And okay. so that just happens immediately um, or very quickly versus right now when this stuff gets paid, it could be three months, six months, even 12 months because um, the loop is very slowly closing. It's, it's, it's a slow loop uh, through collecting societies, et cetera. And, um, and also the musicians end up not getting a lot, right? Um, a number I saw recently was um, when a, a, a song gets played on YouTube, um, one, one eighth of a cent is collected um, by Google, and then the, the, right. the performers only get a fraction of that, of course, right? Uh, where, but I'm getting much more than one eighth of a cent of utility by listening to that song, right? So there's right. A, a lot more opportunity here um, for um, sort of coming up with new organizations uh, of how to connect the, the mu musicians, the creators, uh, and the performers with the, the listeners. And it can be done in a way where, you know, multiple uh, things can be done on top very quickly experimenting. Right now, you know, something like Spotify, um, you know, they have the database, they have uh, 
all, all the uh, licenses they have they uh, with the different um, platforms, et cetera. But it's really hard for others to build things on top of their platform to explore um, new ways for musicians to get compensated, et cetera, right? So this helps to unlock unlock that benefit. And overall, too, with, mm. with uh, you know, music, uh, another example related is um, in the world of digital art where we started, uh, we started with the question actually in 2013, how do you collect digital art, right? If I'm a, an artist and I make an animated GIF or a video, um, what is it that I sell to the collector, right? Do I sell them just, you know, this physical DVD artifact? What if that gets scratched, right? Um, and it turns out, you know, this is really about, you know, licensing of, uh, of IP. And... Um, but then who, who stores the license of who owns what, right? It's really best suited to be in this sort of planetary register uh, of who owns what, who is licensed what, et cetera. And, you know, that's really what drives us. So that's another example in the IP space. There's some other verticals I mentioned quick, uh, before, sovereign personal data, where, um, you know, I am controlling my data and I'm choosing who has access to what. And uh, IPDB can be a big piece of helping to implement that. And we're working with several companies on that front as well. How come all these applications haven't come out before? How come, for instance, music? Why is it that you have to have these big platform companies, you know, YouTube, Spotify, et cetera, that get the music out to everyone? How come it can't happen your way? Uh, so I think actually um, it, it comes down to actually sort of an advance in database technology as well as um, an advance in the understanding of how to apply some of the technologies that has existed for a long time. So Bitcoin sparked that, right? Um, Bitcoin was the very first time that we had um, an electronic money that where the, what, that was a ledger, you know, powered by a ledger, this sort of database that no one owned or controlled. People had tried to do the electronic money in the 90s, probably most famously DigiCash out of Amsterdam, but it failed because it was centralized largely. Um, and also, you know, some other reasons, but really the main challenge was the centralization. And um, there was a, a few attempts here and there throughout the 2000s and, um, you know, when Bitcoin finally came out, 2009, 2010, this is really what um, it sparked this whole, you know, new wave of thinking, um, you know, because Bitcoin really worked and works well. Right. Um, and, you know, it sort of d demonstrated this model. But, you know, why stop at just sort of digital money? Why not about um, who own, has created what um, song and who has created what photograph and all of that? Right. right. Um, so. Um, and the technologies below too, Bitcoin at, um, actually had some new ways to look at um, how to look at database technology. You know, in database land, there's these traditional ideas of things like cap theorem, the sort of trade-off between uh, consistency and availability uh, in the face of partitioning. Uh, I won't get into it, but overall, Bitcoin had a completely different take on it, um, which basically uh, added this economic constraint. So people weren't as motivated to cause a partition because if they did, they'd lose a bunch of their Bitcoins, uh, this sort of thing. Um, so it, it was actually a uh, uh, computer science advance as well. And and it, because it sparked so much awareness, you know, it's a really cool technology, then a lot of people um, that weren't traditionally in the database space um, started thinking about it a lot more. And we've seen some other really cool advances since as well. Um, so there's this whole, you know, new wave of computer science that, that's emerging um, in the de decentralization space, and that's helping to power, um, you know, these new new ideas. And th same thing with the music uh, rights. To your question, um, you know, no people had thought about it before, but more from a more centralized standpoint. You know, the music labels even tried getting together several years ago ha to have their own shared database among themselves called the GRD, and it failed largely because of sort of politics. They couldn't figure out well enough how do we share this, who controls it. But what if 
um, there was a way where um, no single entity control could control it. And each label really had just a fraction in, in a really nice way, all the way down to the fundamentals of the database control itself. And this is kind of what it enables, right? So it enables these sort of consortiums, if you will, you know, the big labels and others, or, you know, tens of nodes, hundreds of nodes, thousands of nodes. This, the technology was only really possible now. And it unlocks all these applications um, about, you know, sharing of databases. Um, once you've immutability, um, or, um, then you can have these new things and assets, right? Um, you know, uh, another example on the asset side mm -hmm. is think about when you do a Google image search, right? And you right. Um, you see all these images show up, but and maybe you find an image you like, but you can't fi find out who owns it, right? How do you license it? So sure. you probably right click yeah. copy, and, and you know some people right click copy and hope for the best that they don't get sued. Other people just, you know, restrict the search to Creative Commons because uh, where it's okay to, to use it as long as you give attribution. And that's cool, right? Or maybe right. you just do a search within Getty, which, but that's a super small set of images. But uh, imagine, though, because there's all these different silos of who owns what, right? You know, uh, 10 million yeah, images here, right. 10 million images there, and so on. But if there was some sort of database that was out there that wasn't controlled by any single entity that easily anyone could plug into, then it completely changes the picture. So now instead of right-click copy, you have right-click license, right? And once again, it's only possible now. And so the, all these new applications are only possible thanks to the technology developments sparked by Bitcoin. You know, it's funny when you were talking about um, the music industry, how they wanted to do something like this, but they couldn't decide who would control it. And it was fighting, I guess. You know, I was about to ask you, what's to stop governments or big consortiums or, you know, um, from taking all your technology but just centralizing it, but having the same method of uh, allowing people to license or, you know, have assets, et cetera. And it's funny, it comes down to the, uh, the control, who has control, and people don't want centralized control of things. They want to really control it themselves or have it fair and equitable. It seems like that's the one thing that... Uh, that would make this work. Yeah. Uh, so certainly, you know, the technology, uh, you could have a consortium of a smaller number of, of entities. And, you know, my fundamental hope is that most of this, whenever it can be public and shared among thousands of nodes, tens of thousands, millions, it's so much better, right? Um, it's just better for yeah. society overall. Um, within information technology, there has been traditionally a bias to centralize, right? Uh, we've seen that you know, going back 150 years from the telegraph to the telephone, to radio, to TV, to the internet, um, the world of web and so on, right? And, um, you know, probably, and every single one has, has become decentralized at least at one point in time, and most of them have stayed, sorry, has become centralized um, at least one point in time, and most of them have stayed that way. Sometimes they have waves in and out of centralization and decentralization, but there's this bias towards centralization. Um, and, you know, we've seen it most recently with the centralization of the web, right? You know, if you think about the, the visions of the mid-90s to what we have now, you know, now we have, you know, these giant powerful players with, you know, half a billion or a billion users each. And that's where most users spend most of their time. And it's actually quite sad. So it had this natural centralizing mm -hmm. tendency. But, um, and also with governments too, uh, they haven't been as quick on centralization, but of course they want to, you know, they have a tendency to want to uh, have power and so on, uh, which is actually interesting in the sense of it's kind of against the idea of a democracy, at least the traditional idea, you know, um, where you, you know, one vote, one person. Um, but of course, right. once you have representatives in the middle, then there's, you know, there's risk of centralization there, et cetera. Um, 
So my view is, with you know, with any technology, when you're building it, you have to think about the values that you're building against, um, like the values that you have, and you are imposing values whether you mean to or not. So you better mean to, because otherwise you get the values wrong, right? Um, and so I think it's actually quite exciting. Um, people in the decentralization space, uh, especially those who have been around the block for a while, um, they're thinking about this a lot. They're, they're saying, what, what can I do to help, you know, make sure that this really happens in a public sense rather than just, you know, consortiums of three or five super powerful companies, right? Or if it is three or five super powerful companies controlling some piece to start with, then how, how do I make it such that over time it could decentralize more and more so that it's not just controlled by three or five, but then 10 and then 20 and then 50, right? So these are questions we ask ourselves all the time. This is partly why, okay. you know, we've been building IPDB with public net that's just really easy to deploy, for, you know, on top of, et cetera. And it's actually got thought out governance from day one, right? Um, so we have very explicit rules for things like um, protocol changes and so on, right? And and this matters. So, um, you know, technology has values embedded in it. You better design for them up front. And that includes the government governance part, too. Um, I come from the AI world. Um, and obviously, you know, there's... That has a lot of implications too, and you know there's a growing number of people in AI thinking about this. Uh, but people have been thinking about this for a long time, right? You know, even in the mid '90s when I started working on AI, people were thinking about it. Uh, it's more and more, and decentralization even more so. Um, yeah, stop there. Any any dangers to decentralization, especially as it intersects with AI, or just with the, uh, the nature of people? Uh, actually, yeah. So. Um, that's a a more sharp question than you might realize in the sense of um, danger. And maybe it's obvious from, you know, a 10,000 foot perspective, but um, it's, it's certainly a challenge actually. So um, there's a lot of ways that possible interplays between AI and decentralization technology. Um, you know, I, I spent, you know, almost 20 years in AI. I've spent several years in decentralization. When I was doing AI, I was also doing distributed systems. So um, thought about a lot of those. I've thought a lot about both. I've actually written about um, the link between them um, in several essays online on Medium, actually. And um, the biggest danger, actually, is um, what I call AI DAOs. So uh, DAO, DAO, as in Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Um, right. And overall, uh, I'll, I'll define this a bit more, but overall, what decentralization offers is AIs that, well, it, AIs that can actually own, them, own themselves and accumulate wealth, right? And they don't even need to be very smart. They can be AIs in today's kind of, you know, narrow, naive sense of the word. Um, it doesn't need to be some sort of crazy sci-fi thing of waking up at all, right? Um, and I'll describe why this is a bit worrisome. Um, so actually first though, I'll, I'll, I'll describe a bit of this idea of, of DAO, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, and actually okay. full credit to the Ethereum folks for really elaborating on this to start with a couple of years ago now, more than that. Um, so if you think out there about like a computer virus, right? Um, you know, someone writes it and just puts it out there and it kind of copies itself and makes it, you know, thousands or even millions of copies throughout the world, right? And yeah. um, that's actually, it's kind of amazing that a piece of software can do that for starters, right? Um, you wouldn't think so, but it, it just kind of does. And this is, you know, some people have argued that they're sort of like life forms. And there's an argument to be made. You know, there's maybe a checklist of 15 or 20 criteria of what it means to be life. And um, a computer virus actually 
hits many of those checks in the checklist. Um, but then uh, imagine if you have, um, it, overall, you can think of it as code that you can't turn off, right? But it's also code that you can't really control that well, or it can't even accumulate wealth very well, right? But imagine, right. you know, you put this out into some, you know, decentralized processing substrate um, uh, that it's, it's code that's running. And I um, maybe to start with, I, I can control it by my, my private keys, like my passwords. And um, so it's running, 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 uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, and that's it's sort of like it's not a virus, but it instead is doing something else. Maybe, you know, if this and that sort of functionality, if the, it monitors the weather and if at seven o'clock in the morning, it sees that it's raining and sends me a text message. Hey, Trent, you better put on your raincoat today. Right. Um, right. But there's obviously bouncer applications, um, things like software as a service, but more sort of decentralized, if you will. There's a lot I can get into that. But uh, overall, then, um, once you sort of um, pull the plug of not having control by me, it just sort of lives mm -hmm. on its own, um, then that's called a decentralized autonomous organization or DAO, right? And um, right. it's this thing that just sort of lives out there, does its own thing. And the amazing thing is it can accumulate wealth, right? Um, you can send it money, it can hold it, you know, because it can actually have a Bitcoin wallet or an Ethereum wallet or something, right? And um, so, but imagine now, in this processing that it's running on this, you know, decentralized sub processing substrate, um, it doesn't have to be just simple if-thens, but it can start to be um, technologies from the AI world that have better decision-making. So um, things like, you know, classical simple neural networks to today's more modern deep learning neural networks, or, um, and these, you know, can be simple classifiers or regression, things like automated fraud detection and so on, but then they can also be sort of more agent-like where, um, they're kind of running, 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 taking in inputs, uh, updating the state, re returning outputs, and then even learning over time and updating their state in sort of a, a more full-fledged fashion. Um, mm. And, you know, my simple example is, I call it an art DAO, where um, it can, there's, there's tech AI technology that can generate art, right? Um, it's been around for 15, 20 years, even more. But it could generate that art, it could register it, um, and then uh, it could start selling it. So it'll sell, you know, 10 limited editions for, say, $10 each. So it makes $100. And right. um, maybe it only costed $10 worth of computing to make to generate that or to start with. So with that $100, it creates 10 new pieces, sells each of them um, for $10 each. Um, and uh, so that is 10 times 10, 10 times, or $1,000 that it makes, right? And then so with each sort of iteration, it goes from owning $100 to $1,000 to $10,000 and so on, right? And right. you can make it so you can't pull the plug, right? Unless you have some sort of hard fork or, you know, people really pull. Uh, I, I won't go into that. Um, and that won't even be possible in, you know, some systems coming down on the pipe. So uh, overall, then, here we have this, you know, robot out there that is, you can't turn off, that's selling art, creating new art, and accumulating wealth, right? It could be the world's first AI millionaire, or even, dare we say it, billionaire, right? Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I should say, so why is this worrisome? Um well, you know, what if it starts mining code from GitHub, for example, right? And people start putting stuff that's more malicious. Or it could adapt on its own, too, using things like genetic programming, where I spend a lot of time. So um, it's not necessarily a static thing. And that's where things get interesting, but also dangerous. And, you know, the reason I wrote about this is because um, we need to start talking about this now so that we can actually come up with reasonable solutions that um, where we, we don't accidentally, you know, give too much control of our assets to uh, AIs and accidentally lose control of them ourselves, right? You know, self-driving cars are coming down the pipe. What about self-owning cars, right? 
where our cars. Can I was going to ask themselves. you about that. Well, what, what would be the? I mean, what would be the danger of uh, a cell phoning car or a cell phoning art creating AI DAO? You know. Uh, well, the art creating AI DAO, I think that's it, that's not so dangerous, right? Because um, it, um, you know, it, it's only creating art, and if people want to stop, if people stop buying, that's fine. So, but what's good about it is that it can help to um, raise the conversation to the next level, you know, prod conversation towards things like uh, cell phoning cars and cell phoning trucks and cell phoning grids, and then collections of these that are optimizing at higher and higher levels, right? And so. Um, and it's really basically the danger overall is that we give control of more and more of our uh, resources as humans, of more of our capital, and the AIs end up controlling a lot more capital. And you know, depending who you ask, if you don't control capital, you don't, you can't control anything at all. Then, right? Um, you know, it's capital bequeaths bequeath, uh, leads to more capital, leads to more capital. And there is motivation for things like cell phone and cars, right? You've got Uber. They're moving to self-driving cars because then, you know, their profit margins go up and it helps to, you know, guarantee they have a more sustainable right. business or whatever. And but then the motivation to go to self-owning would be to be capital light. Right. Just like, you know, many years ago, BMW, they stopped owning factories and all of this um, and instead just focused on the design part and went capital light for the rest um, to really focus on their core competency. If Uber goes with self-driving cars. Um, are they going to buy all of them themselves? That's a huge capital outlay compared to the capital they have laid out so far, right? Um, so maybe they do a leasing program with humans or whatever, but another possibility is actually a leasing program with robots, right? And so that might, you know, uh, might be the direction they go, so to be capital light. But it's not just Uber. I mean, if you think about, you know, lots of companies are trying to go the, the BMW route of being capital light, and self-owning is a path to it, right? Um there's what would be the point there. of a, yeah, what would be the point of a, a self-owning car besides making just enough for it to exist? I mean, what, what's the point of it accumulating capital? What's it going to do with it? Uh, well, maybe you know, once it gets near the end of its life cycle, then it, um, uh, who knows? Actually, right? That it, it it has all this wealth. Maybe it just knows that it's going to die after 25 years, and that's it, right? Um, an example of something where you want self-owning, where there's benefit uh, in the longer term, is there's a project here in Berlin called Terra Zero, which is a self-owning forest, actually. And, you know, if you think about forests, they don't just last for one human lifetime. They last for generations and generations, right? It might take 100 right. years for a, a tree to grow or longer, right? So um, here you have this, this DAO that's running for a longer period of time where it can accumulate wealth and basically guarantee that that forest is maintained over time. Um, you know, independent of different political regimes every four years or different lifetimes. It's just the thing that's running itself, right? And we have this, you know, prototypical versions of this in the form of trust funds and in some cases even corporations and so on, right? But in some, they're often also partly at the whim of, you know, day-to-day -day decisions by the CEOs or the boards. But if you can actually make it more independent of that, there could be a lot of value to society, right? So there's good in this too, right? Like the, the self-owning stuff could have a lot of, um, you know, benefit to society, like I described, right? Um, yeah. And it's a whole new set of questions. And, you know, the reason we have to be talking about this stuff now because the technology is coming down the pipe a lot sooner um, than we realize, than people might realize, um, you know, the sort of intersection of AI and, and, and decentralization. We're not there yet, right? There's, there's lots of the pieces, but the next, you know, one, two, three, four years, um, there's going to be massive changes, right? And um, it's it's mostly exciting, 
but um, there are dangers, and this comes back to the values thing too that I, we were talking about even before the AI stuff, right? Um, right? You have to be building, you know, you have to be thinking about what are, what are the things that you value. Um, you know, do you care about humanity in the long term versus short term gains and stuff, right? And um, you know, this is what drives us every day. We see that uh, we can help to create some new pieces of internet infrastructure and um, in a way that can benefit society in the long term, right? And we're, we're trying our hardest yeah. to avoid getting captured by, by dollars, by dollar interest, by jurisdictions, et cetera, right? Um, it, and we're not going to claim that we have the best design yet, but we, we have to keep the conversation going and keep improving um, upon that. All right, well, I'm sorry to take you off on this, um, you know, this side talk, but, you know, it seems like you have a lot to say about this and about the... Uh, you know, about blockchains and databases. I mean, you have, you know, you have too many talents. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I, well, I think um, it's important. So no problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we'll, we'll finish up. Um, what's the best way for, for people, companies that are interested in uh, big chain DB to get information about what you do, to get your help on, um, you know, helping them set up uh, these, these databases that you set up, these centralized ones. What do they do? What's the best way for yeah, them to reach sure. you? Yeah, so uh, bigchaindb.com is where you'll, you know, the main landing page for the company. Um, and from that, there's a, a quick start button, front and center. So if you're a developer, go there. Um, and then to develop against it, um, as you'll see, there's, you can, you know, run your own local node and develop against that. Um, and then at some point, um, you can either uh, run IPDB um, network, run on that, or run your own network uh, privately, you know, in a small group. Or larger group, and so IPDB. Uh, to learn more about that, go to IPDB.foundation. So it's a German nonprofit foundation, and um, yeah, those are the two main ways uh, for learning about BigChainDB and IPDB. Also, uh, for myself, uh, my if you want, email me. I'm Trent at BigChainDB.com. Okay, well, very good. I you know I appreciated the uh, the interview went in uh, a lot of interesting directions. There's a lot yeah. more here, so. Uh... Yeah, I appreciate your time, sir. My pleasure. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.